All right, um, let's pray. Father, we're going to look at your word, and uh, Jesus is telling us the most important of qualities we need to have. So we ask you to help us to listen, to examine ourselves, and to do what we need to do according to his perfect, all-wise words, Lord. In Christ's name, amen. Well, when you think about the personal qualities a Christian should strive to develop in his or her own life, you know, the, the essential things, it's actually a pretty short list. I mean, the stuff you've really got to get nailed down, it's um, not that long, it's not that complicated. I mean, I know the Bible's a pretty big book with lots of useful and important information in it, but when you look at the essential things, the things that matter most in terms of what God wants from us and our relationship with Him and with each other, it's pretty few, There's, it's really pretty basic. So faith, of course, is essential, right? That's the beginning of everything. When we stop trusting, we immediately lose our way. Faith, that's the main thing in your relationship with the Lord. If you don't trust him, everything else falls away. Love is the other uh, great virtue. Uh, loving God is the great commandment. Loving our neighbor is the second greatest commandment, right? Jesus said, love one another as I have loved you. That's essential. Obedience is the fruit of faith and love for God. It's also essential in the Christian life. In fact, Jesus couldn't have been clearer than when he said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So that's basic. So faith, love, obedience. But there's another quality, which we're going to focus on today, that if it's missing, the other ones won't show up and they'll be overthrown by it. So if it's not there, Nothing good can remain, and that quality is humility, humility. It's essential. It's one of the few essential things you have to have. If you cannot conquer pride, you cannot believe God, and you cannot love other people. I mean, that's basically what you need to understand. Pride is the enemy of all goodness, all good things. It's the enemy of God's kingdom. It's remarkable... Um, that we find in the Gospels, Jesus building his, hum his kingdom with human beings. He uses men and women to build his kingdom. Now, of course, his kingdom is one of redemption, so it kind of makes sense that he would do that. But human beings are so filled with this poisonous thing called pride, you, you wonder, how can he do it? How's it going to happen with him? When he leaves and he leaves the kingdom in the hands of these 12 guys and they're supposed to move it forward. How's he going to build that kingdom and develop this plan that's grown enormously all down through history in which people are redeemed, redeemed humanity? How's it going to happen through the labor of people like us who have so much pride? Well, I'm glad he chose to use these 12 guys because, honestly, if they didn't conquer their pride and make it, I don't think I'd have any confidence that I could ever conquer mine and make it. But they did. And it's a story of redemption, how they came to be such wonderful men. He changes us so that we become people who are humble and can believe and trust in him and can love both God and our neighbor and love enough to make a difference in the world. So that's what it's about. So first let me remind you just where we kind of are in Matthew's gospel here. We're studying this portion where he's preparing the disciples. So he's getting them ready. He's leaving fairly soon, and um, the focus of the gospel is on his relationship with them and how he's getting them ready to carry on the kingdom work. But you know, sometimes 
they just seem so unready. They seem so unready for the big task to come. And he knows them. So he knows, as unready as they look to us so far, he knows what they can become. And so he continues with them, developing them, teaching them, growing them, challenging them. Sometimes he's rather sharp with them, but always he's working to build them up into men who will be world-changing apostles. So Matthew 18, that this chapter is all about serving the kingdom of God. It's about how we should be if we claim to live for the Messiah and serve the Messiah. So it's true for them, it's true for us. If I say Jesus is Lord, or if I say I love Jesus, I am declaring that he is supreme in my heart. That's what I'm announcing to everyone when I say those words. And that means certain things are going to be evident in my life. And you should be able to see them. So this chapter gets to the heart of these things. And Jesus, well, Jesus is never one to mince words, you know. He's like pretty direct about most things. But here he's extremely direct. I mean, sometimes he speaks in ways that are a little bit of an enigma. You know, you kind of have to think about them and ponder them. But not here. He's uh, no wiggle room, no interpretive questions about it. It's just as straightforward as it can possibly be. So, and I like it that way, just give it to me straight, that's the way I prefer it, but um, that's what it is. So Matthew 18 covers three areas, humility, uprightness, and forgiveness, and they're all critical for the Christian life and Christian growth. So we're going to look at the first one today, humility, that's our topic, and the chapter starts off bluntly enough, but it's it's a blunt question, not from Jesus, but from the disciples. So at that time, verse 1, the disciples came to Jesus and said, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, you could take that two ways, that question. It could be sort of a general question, like just describe for us sort of what the person would be like who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Or it could be a a competitive question. Which one of us is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Guess which one they're asking. Yeah, it's the second one. Yeah, they're asking competitively. In fact, it's obvious because in, in Mark's gospel, it makes that really plain in Mark chapter 9, verse 34. So um, it might sound ridiculously petty to us for them to ask this question, but that's a real question for them, especially understanding what they believe, what they believe about Jesus and what they believe about their role as his particularly chosen inner circle. So there's nothing unusual about it. You know, when you read any book about the inner workings of the White House in any administration with any president, they're all about competition for his attention and um, getting his ear and having their kind of agenda move forward. And all of these uh, cabinet members and staff people and all, they're in competition with each other all the time. Now sometimes there's little groups that are friendly with each other and they're in competition with other little groups that are friendly, but it's always that, always that. I'd hate to be that guy. Uh, Can you imagine that? Just what is, always wondering what the agenda is of your people. You've gotta be able to trust these people and um, they've always got something going on. It's human nature, power. Power is extremely corrupting and when you're that close to ultimate power, you want to influence it and have your power, your, your desires influence that person. Power is ultimately determined by access to the person that has the authority. And so cabinets and um, all of that 
becomes very competitive and uh, angry. And that's true in every time, in every place, in every form of government. If it's a king, it's the court, right? Court intrigue. Have you ever heard of a court without intrigue? No. It's always going on, and it happens in democracies. It happens in every form of government. Backbiting, undermining, intrigue. It's there any time men or women are near the seat of power. And Jesus is power. At least they believe that he is the Messiah who is to come. And they are his men. So it's the same dynamic going on that you always see. Peter had already confessed that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God in chapter 16. They all see Jesus accept that title from Peter. They've all heard that. And he rewards Peter for saying it right before he calls him Satan. For blowing it. So Jesus is the Messiah. They believe that. And he's setting up a kingdom. And they are the guys he's chosen to be with him. So there's a little competition going on. And some of them get more Jesus time than others, right? Who was on the Mount of Transfiguration we saw in the last chapter? Peter, James, and John, right? Well, I wasn't up there. And it, and it probably isn't every single one of the 12 think that they're the greatest in the kingdom. It's probably adhering around certain people. I mean, James and John were pretty powerful individuals. Peter, obviously, was highly favored in certain ways and special. And there could have been other ones, too, that just sort of rose to the top or had certain prominence. And so they're kind of gathering. The weaker guys are gathering around their favorite, and they're sort of pressing. So they're, they're asking Jesus, you know, who's, who's the greatest? Vying for power, vying for influence, vying for prestige. It's just, it's not enough to be one of the 12 out of the whole world. Who's the greatest among the 12, right? It's not enough to have received these incredible gifts of power by which demons bow at their feet and diseases fly away from people and they can heal all kinds of things. It's, that's not enough. Who's the greatest? It's not enough to have been selected into this band who are with Jesus nearly all the time. Which one's better or higher than the others? So who is the greatest? Now I said these are natural questions for men in the world. It's typical. I don't know how common it is for cabinet members to give voice to those feelings, but here they're actually walking up to Jesus and want to know. So it's something they discuss a lot. In fact, you see them, do, it's their great weakness, really. I mean, for every noble aspect of the apostles, if you talk about their weak areas, this one always seems to be the weak one that percolates up to the top. Even to the very end, even at the Last Supper, they're still in that mode. Which one of us is the greatest, you know? Who's going to be at, who's going to be at the prominent place? Remember James and John, they say, we have something to ask you, Jesus. And he says, what is it? And they said, let us be on your right hand and on your left in your kingdom. Oh, now, can you imagine what the other guys thought when James and John asked them that? What, what do you mean, you guys? What are you asking? You know, they're right in front of everybody. They're always thinking about that. Power. So, they ask the question. He does not respond to their question by telling them which one of them is the greatest, in his opinion. He goes from the competitive mode back to the general principle mode. So he's going to describe what the greatest is like, and then they can see if they fit that. That's the right way to do it. Isn't it amazing how often, um, well, let's look at this first here, this general principle. He's going to take a child 
He called a child to himself in verse 2 and set him before them. Children always seem to be around Jesus. It's pretty interesting. And it's not surprising at all, right? He welcomed children. And we just experienced this in Uganda. If you saw all the children following us around, especially Brad, um, they were calling him the Pied Piper over there. But you know, in non-technological societies, when children don't have television and, and little gaming things to play with all the time and, and do all that kind of stuff, they're just sort of interested in whatever's different that's going on. So they're always around. And anything that's important that's going on, they're just kind of around and they want to see. They get up close. That's, you see that still all over the place. They just show up. Children were always around in Jesus' ministry. Remember the miracle of the 5,000, feeding of the 5,000 with the loaves and the fishes? And the, the apostles turned around and who had, who had the food? Who had the bread and the fish? A child, right? It's a little boy, right? So um, that, they were right there. They were always around. And Jesus was very kid-friendly. So, um, so he calls a child because he wants to make a point about greatness in the kingdom. And it's a small child. We know this because of the word used normally suggests a younger child, but it's also in Mark's account, it says that after Jesus set the child before him, he took the child in his arms. So he's holding it. So it's a small child, a tyke. It's not 16. <laughs> and then Jesus speaks to them in a very surprising way. First he uses an expression of formal declaration. Whenever Jesus says this, Truly I say to you, you listen, right? I mean, everything he says is important, but when he says that, it's like really important. So he's going to attack this competitive thing directly, and he's telling them, this is a truly I say to you statement. Unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of God. I don't think they expected that. That kind of knocks you back on your heels. Did you notice how he changed the subject? They were saying, which one is going to be greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he says, you might need to think about whether you're in it at all. He uses the word enter. You better be converted and become like a, like a child or you won't even enter the kingdom of heaven. They're acting like men who are outside the kingdom of God. They're acting like men who are in the kingdom of this world. Their wrangling over position is completely contrary to the nature of the kingdom. He's just shaking them up with that. So contrary that he uses the word enter with them. He suggests the solution for them might be conversion, like they're unconverted. C.S. Lewis once wrote, um, according to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. He's not exaggerating. He's, a, he's echoing what Jesus is teaching here. Pride is the complete anti-God state of mind. It pushes out Humility, which is a necessary attribute of the follower of Jesus. Humility tells us our place before God in our relationship to other creatures of God, other human beings. It's so evil, pride is so evil, yet it's so much a part of us. If you stop and think about 
your worst sins, you're going to find pride in there somewhere. It's just always lurking. So look closely at yourself. It might shock you. There's a pretty ferocious monster in there, a foul monster, more hideous than you might be willing to admit or let yourself even think about on most days. But that's the great challenge is finding, fighting our pride. So the disciples of Jesus obviously were consumed with it, competing for power and honor and glory before men. That's not the way of the kingdom of God. That is the way of the kingdom of men. So it's, it's normal that they think like that because that's how human beings are and that's how all kingdoms are run, but not his. It's gonna be different than that. So Jesus is giving the reverse of the world not a better version of it, the opposite of it. So he puts this child before him and picks him up in his arms, Mark says. And he says, look at this child. You need to be like this. That's what he's telling them. And there's two verbs here. They go together. You must be converted. That word converted means turned. Um, go in the other direction from the direction you're going. You're going the wrong way. Which direction? You must become what? Like a small child. That's what you must be like. So he's directed our minds to start thinking about the qualities of a small child. This is where we get in trouble because you don't want to have a sort of saccharine, um, sweet, uh, nice, sweet view of children. Um, children can be very sweet, um, not always. <laughs> but here's how people often will read this. You know, children don't aspire to power. They, they willingly associate with their inferiors. They, they do not regard outward distinctions. They are docile and trusting and simple. And they're frank and obedient and unpretentious and humble. People that say that don't have children. <laughs> but many preachers and teachers of the Bible will, will kind of use that kind of language about what these, this quality of sort of a simple sweetness and kind of a na naivete. And um, they, they, they either don't have kids, and they certainly haven't taught kindergarten. You, you can ask my wife about that. But, um, and I think those qualities are true about children at certain times. And some children are more docile and sweet-tempered than other children. But um, the opposite is true about every child at certain times, and some children are way more inclined to be the opposite of that. But it's not that that he's talking about. Um, the capacity of children for selfishness and duplicity is just as real as their capacity to be sweet and charming. Um, sweet humility is not constantly testing the waters to see what you can get away with, and yet children tend to do that, right? So I don't think he's talking about child-likeness in terms of how children behave or react. At least that's not the main point. I mean, the capacity of children for cruelty is kind of off the charts. What greater evil or pride for someone who's very small, what can be greater than this? You are not my friend. I mean, the very essence of that, which many kids say to other children when they're little, that's the most devastating thing they can think of to say. You are unworthy of me. I mean, that is the, that is the essence of pride and, and vile humanity. I will not gonna be your friend. And it's common. 
Ask the kindergarten teacher. That's the most devastating thing they can think of to say to one another, and they do it all the time. So it's not that. He's not saying, be like that. He's not saying like that. No, he's not talking about the qualities of children and their behavior or their attitudes. He's talking about their place, okay? They are the bottom of the social ladder. They are the most ignored. Children are powerless from a worldly point of view, not important. Children are weak, they are dependent, and in the way of important things. Now, we live in a very child-centered world. It's kind of, it's, there's good about that, and there's kind of a twisted side to that too, but we don't grasp, I think, what Jesus' point meant in their culture. Now, they love their children. Every culture, people love their children. But they didn't have Disneyland in the ancient world. They, they didn't have theme, but they wouldn't even think of creating a multi-billion dollar thing for children to play in. Uh, that's not even how most people around the world ever think. The idea of a giant multi-billion dollar playground would not enter any first century person's mind. Of course, nowadays, those things are more aimed at adults, I think, than kids. But um, people love their children, but they didn't cater to them, you know? There was not a youth culture in ancient times, or really until pretty recent times, your culture, everybody's culture was the same. The, the songs you sang and the music you um, hummed was the same as your parents and their grandparents. It was the same music styles, everything like that. Kids didn't think their parents' music was square or weird, or what's the common term for that? See, it was, see how I'm aging myself. But See, there's already a generation gap right there just in the language I used. But there was only one kind of music everybody shared. And adults didn't strive to act like teenagers because that would have been a shameful thing. People wanted respect. The very thing children didn't have was a lot of respect. Children could not lead. They could not fight. They weren't wise. They lacked experience. They didn't produce wealth. They, had, uh, they didn't have any ability or time to acquire any. They didn't decide anything. They just didn't count for much. And the whole idea of, um, you know, it used to be Children should be seen and not heard. I mean, that was common. So the authority structure was pretty strong. So I, I think we're wrong to read in to Jesus' admonition here to become like children in some sense of the virtue of childlikeness. To enter the kingdom, he's talking about smallness, unimportantness, humility. They were the least powerful members of society. They were dependent, utterly dependent. So to enter the kingdom, you've got to recognize your smallness. That's what he's talking about. One's dependence and one's low place in the hierarchy. So he's referring to humility, which is the opposite of pride. And one goes right back to the Beatitudes, right? The Sermon on the Mount, the very first one. Blessed are the impoverished of spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If you don't understand how desperately poor your soul is before God, you can't even get into the kingdom of heaven. It's the same idea. Who do you think you are? Well, God's sure lucky to have me on his team. No, you haven't even entered it if you think that way. You haven't started. And then right after that, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the gentle. So we come into the kingdom as beggars, not competitors. And they're acting like competitors, which shows they don't have the quality of the kingdom. Now, they have, they've got something because Jesus sees it in them. But right now, they're acting like, and they frequently act like people that are not kingdom members. So he's putting it right in their face with a child. 
If you don't become small like this, humble, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven at all. So I think I'm right about that, that um, and it's very strongly supported by the Mark 9 parallel passage. Mark and Luke both present kind of unique aspects of what Jesus said on this occasion, but Mark records these words of Jesus, which is, introduces this whole discussion. Jesus says, if anyone wants to be first, he shall be last. That's the idea. If anybody wants to be first, of greatest importance, he has to become the person of least importance. And the servant of all, he says, the greatest among you shall be the last and the servant of all. That's the place of a small child in the ancient world. That's the idea. Greatness in the kingdom of God is measured by humble service. Not power, not influence, nothing else. Power seeking. Leon Morris, the Bible commentator and theologian, he said, the kingdom of heaven is not like earthly kingdoms. An earthly kingdom's military might or earthly wealth is what counts. It's the ability to overthrow others and to outsmart them and to outbid them that matters. The person who asserts himself is the one who gets on. He's obviously British. But King Jesus' kingdom is quite different. Paradoxically, it's the person who is like the ch little child who is the greatest. Being in the kingdom does not mean entering a competition for the supreme place, but engaging in lowly service. True greatness consists not in receiving service, but in giving it. The genuinely humble person is the one that really counts in the kingdom. The humble person is the greatest. And that's exactly right. That's what Jesus is saying. He's captured Jesus' thought perfectly there. Someone has said the kingdom of God is not a fight a climbing to the top, it's scrambling to the bottom to lift other people up. And I, I think that's a wonderful way to think about it. But do you see how different that is from the world? It's completely different. And whenever Christians forget that, and when churchmen or any believers begin to ape the world and do things the world's way like that, we're in a lot of trouble. And that happens way too often in Christianity. These power kingdoms, people set up, built around them. Greatness in church history is written in humility. I mean, time after time after time, the great men were the most humble men and often the weakest men. Great in service, not in power, not in ego, not in wealth or anything like that. When power and prestige are sought by Christian people and then gained, Christianity immediately starts to lose whatever is wonderful and distinctive about it. But wherever there's humble service going on in church history, there's enormous spiritual power that follows and great things happen. You know, I was thinking about the reformers when I was looking at all this and how they, by the power of the pen and the preached word, I mean, freed whole nations from the yoke of superstition and inerrant doctrine and all of that. None of them gained earthly power. None of them. Or riches by their efforts. And while popes and cardinals and bishops lived in palaces that even earthly princes would be jealous of, the reformers were such simple men. Luther, Calvin, Beza, all those guys, they all lived and died men of very modest means. Con I'm, I'm thinking about the contrast between 
the death of popes and the death of reformers. And I'm going to contrast for you uh, Leo X, who was the pope when Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the door at Wittenberg Church, and John Calvin. Okay, I'm going to contrast those two individuals. Leo X was the pope um, when the Reformation started, and uh, he didn't live that much longer, but he was, he was the one that tried to get Luther killed. John Calvin was the most influential theologian of the Reformation, the man whose book, The Institutes of the Christian Religion, is often listed in the 10 most influential books in the history of the world. Uh, so that's how important he was. What was Leo like? What was Leo X's, the, the Pope's life like? Well, historian Will Durant, who's a secular historian, he said, he was habituated to gold. He had a gold habit. He lived in palaces all his life. He never labored for his income, but he was a great patron of the arts at a level seldom seen before or since. Of course, he needed a lot of money for this. And he spent so much at one point in his papacy that he ran out of gold. And Will Durant says, Leo's need for money was souring his once happy reign. His gifts to relatives, friends, artists, writers, musicians, his lavish maintenance of an unprecedented court, the insatiable demands of the new St. Peter's, that's St. Peter's Basilica, which he was building. You can go visit it today. The expense of the Urbino War, he was at war with other people, and the preparation for a crusade were leading him into bankruptcy. His regular revenue of 420,000 ducats a year from fees, annates, and tithes was completely inadequate, and yet he was always yet was always more difficult to secure from a Europe resentful of ecclesiastical collections flowing to Rome. To replenish his treasury, Leo created 1,353 new saleable offices for which the appointees paid a total of 889,000 ducats. He sold not only these sinecures, but even the highest of offices, like that of Papal Chamberlain. In July 1517, that was the year the Reformation started, he named 31 new cardinals, many of them men of ability, but most of them chosen, frankly, for the capacity to pay for the honor and power. So Cardinal Ponzetti, physician, scholar, author, paid 30,000 ducats. Yeah, you can be a cardinal if you give me 30,000 ducats. Altogether, Leo's pen on this occasion brought a half a million ducats into the treasury. That's how he lived, and this is how he died. This is what happened when he died. Midnight, December 1st to 2nd, that midnight, 1521, he died. Ten days before completing his 45th year. Many of the attendants and some members of the Medici family carried off from the Vatican everything they could lay their hands on. In Rome, the bankers despoiled themselves. The Bini firm had lent Leo 200,000 ducats, the Gaudi 32,000, the Rascoli 10,000. Moreover, Cardinal Pucci had lent him 150,000 and Cardinal Salviati 80,000. The cardinals would have first claim on anything salvaged and Leo died worse than bankrupt. Can you imagine that? You die and instead of people caring for your body and sad, they're just raiding your place. They're taking everything they can find. All of the people that worked for you just stealing all your stuff and running off with it. John Calvin never lived in a palace. He lived a very simple and actually rather austere life. In fact, Pope Pius IV, who was the Pope during Calvin's time, he like 1559 to 1565, he said of John Calvin, he said, the strength of that heretic consisted in this, that money never had the slightest charm for him. 
If I had such servants, my domain would extend from sea to sea. Calvin never hired a Michelangelo or a Raphael or a Leonardo or any other Ninja Turtles or artists. <laughs> he just preached the word of God. That's, that's all he did and write. And there was nothing in his home to run off with when he died. In fact, there's a list of his possessions and it's very short and very simple. His biographer wrote, Calvin had given definite instructions for his funeral. Nothing must distinguish it from that of any other citizen. His body was to be sewed in a white shroud and laid in a simple pine coffin. At the grave, there were to be neither words or song. The wishes of the deceased were scrupulously carried out, but although in accordance with his will, all pomp was avoided, an unnumbered multitude followed the coffin to the cemetery with deep respect and silent grief. He who was averse to all ambition did not want a tombstone. And just a few months later, when foreign students desired to visit the place where the reformer's earthly remains rest, the place could no longer be pointed out among the fresh mounds. Oh, he's here somewhere, but I don't remember where. It's, nothing's marked. Humility. Humility. By choice. Living by choice as a, as a man of unimportance. That marks greatness in the kingdom of God. Even when the man's counsel and advice were sought after by people from all over Europe and all over the educated Christian world, that's the heart of Jesus' teaching in practice. And if you compare the fruit of Leo's life and the fruit of John Calvin's life, they're completely different. Leo's legacy is in this world. I mean, outstanding art, amazing architecture, still one of the wonders of the world. People still flock there to see all of that. And all of it will burn on the last day. Calvin's was a harvest of untold millions of souls if you think about the impact that his doctrines had and the men he discipled that went and won whole nations for Christ and the gospel. Millions of people in heaven and nothing left on earth. He lived for another kingdom, not for himself. I mean, that's what it's about. That's what it means to be a Christian in this world. The greatest among you is the servant of all. That's it. That's how Jesus defines greatness. You want to be great? Be willing to be small. To be small. It really depends on who it is you want to have you regard as great. Men will regard you as great in one way. God will regard you as great in a totally different way. And a Christian's desire should be for God to see some kind of greatness in us. To see our humble place. That's what pleases him. And that should be enough for us. It, it should please us to magnify him and not ourselves in what we do. And of course, taking the humble place also has reference to how we act towards other people. That's what verse 5 is about. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. The truly humble soul does not turn from association with the lowly or the outcast or the sinner. And Jesus is our unsurpassed example there. He never saw, Jesus never saw anybody's condition in life as making them less important than a prince or a king or some great, well, in our culture it would be a celebrity, right? Those are the really important people. Jesus never looked at the outward condition in regard to people. He always looked at hearts. And because he associated with the lowly, he saw some real good-hearted people. In other words, they were genuinely humble inside. 
And what jumps out in verse 5 is that Jesus says, our attitude toward the lowly reveals our attitude towards him. When we receive the small, we receive him. And that's the connection between pride and being excluded from the kingdom. To exalt ourselves over others is to be exalting ourselves over him. That's the logical conclusion of verse 5 there. To reject the lowly is to reject him. Because to receive the lowly is to receive him. So you can't have Christ and look down on people or despise people. You can't do those two things. And from here, Jesus moves into a horribly frightening warning in verse 6. But we're out of time. So come next week and you can be horribly frightened as well. <laughs> Let's pray. Precious Lord, drive away all pride and self-exaltation from our hearts. And if it's there, root it out by any means you desire. Expose it. Help us see it so we can cast it from us. Help us put self aside so you may be seen more clearly in us. This we ask in Christ's holy and exalted name. Amen.